to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster planning, emergency management, crisis management, business continuity, COVID, anything that's related to those subjects. Speaking of which, if there is something you'd like us to talk about on the show, please feel free to go to the Voice America page for the show. There is a button underneath the graphic. You can send me an email. I do respond to all emails. Uh, If there is a product or service you'd like to promote as well, uh, you can reach me the same way and I can get you some information and we can talk about, uh, um, you know, having you advertise or come on the show and talk about a product or service you offer. Um, I I also want to uh, just thank everybody at solutionsreview.com who added my book, Testing Disaster Recovery and Business Continuity Plans, to their 16 most essential books for business continuity directors. Thanks everyone there, and thanks to the other 15 uh, people that make the list as well. I have actually all those books, so um, I'm really honored to be on that list. And finally, thanks to everyone at Stone Road and their product, BoastAssessment.com, that allows you to go in and track the progress of your business continuity programs, where you need to focus your resources, um, you know, where you're maybe lacking in putting your program together. So thanks, everyone, at Stone Road. For months, you've all heard me talk about attending and speaking at the Continuity and Resilience Today conference. And I'd said if I was lucky enough, I'd start bringing on some of the speakers who wanted to come uh, onto the show and uh, talk about what they presented at the CRT conference. And today is one of those days. I'm lucky enough, I actually got to talk to him uh, last week uh, when the CRT conference uh, was being held uh, for a short, uh, brief period as I was uh, hosting a live channel. And uh, he's come back today. Uh, He agreed to come back and talk about uh, the session that he held at the CRT conference. So I'd like to welcome to the show today, Mark Hoffman. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, congratulations on the book and uh, and on getting uh, put on that list too. That was pretty cool. Yes, thank you. It was uh, quite a surprise for me. Let me tell you, <laughs> especially when <laughs> I had fifteen other books on that list, and I thought, how did mine get there? <laughs> no but, kidding, right? You know, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm I'm quite humbled and uh, honored to be on that list. So, thank you for that. Uh, Mark, I, I know you and I chatted last week, and you know, um, so I know a little bit about you. But uh, could you give our listeners, because we have listeners literally around the globe, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got into what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm originally from the great state of New Jersey, the Garden State, um, down in the southern part where we don't say things like, hey, forget about it, stuff like that, down where we just actually do kind of more farming and things like that. But uh, say about uh, 20 years or so ago, I um, left New Jersey and I came to the Toronto area, and I've lived here since, and uh, about three and a half years ago became a Canadian citizen. Um, Yay! 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, you mean <laughs> yay, a. Yeah, so I um, <laughs> have been doing business continuity for, I don't know, the last 20, 25 years, something like that. And it all started for me, actually, back in the 1980s when I was working um, as a database administrator for a company. And we had a guy come in, and he started talking to us about disaster recovery. <clears throat> and I thought, wow, this is really cool. And the more he talked about it, the more I thought, man, this is really where I want to focus. But I was never able to really get into that area, and I just kind of continued to pursue my IT career and do different things, but it was always just kind of hanging in the back of my mind of something that I was really interested in, but I just didn't really have any idea how to do it. And then... You you remember everybody, you know, we all got involved in the whole Y2K thing, which is really, in its own way, a business continuity uh, event. And so that got me a little bit more traction in that area. And coming out of that, I started to do more in the business continuity area and continued to work in disaster recovery. And then uh, it seemed like the more and more IT jobs that I got, they were more in the management area. And so I always looked to try to protect whatever company I was working for through these, you know, good practices around disaster recovery. And uh, it, it just kind of, you know, blossomed from there. And so today I'm the founder and president of a, a small consulting firm here in the Toronto area. Um, I have clients all over Canada and in the U.S. and Caribbean and in Europe, and I've never been busier. I've never been happier. I just absolutely love what I do, and I feel like now that I've been able to really build the career in this you know, area, uh, I just feel like I'm I'm doing what I was built to do. Like this is this was what I was meant to be doing, and I just absolutely love it. That's great to hear. A lot of people, you know, don't say that. So uh, that's really good to hear. So, I'm, and I'm glad you could find the time to uh, come and share your experiences with us. I'm now, happy to do it. At CRT, your conference, uh, your session, I should say, was cyber attack response, a focus on resilience and reputation. Now, right. when we spoke um, during the live channel uh, during CRT for, you know, 10 minutes or so, you suggested that there's kind of two work streams happening during a cyber attack, because usually most of us think, you know, a cyber attack, it's IT only. But you, you've you said that there's kind of two work streams happening. Can you kind of explain to our viewers what you mean by two work streams happening here? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, it, it still confuses people, and there are still people who think that I'm a cyber expert in the sense that, you know, I can do the firewalls and the intrusion detection and the forensics work and that's not it at all like i'm interested in that but i'm that's not my my specialty mm-hmm. what i had said was that for the longest time people have treated cyber as a risk or an incident that it could handle by themselves um, and those days are done we can't look at it that way anymore we have to think beyond the technology and so in addition to that that technology work stream of firewalls and intrusion detection and cyber response and forensics and containment and all of that, which is absolutely necessary. We have to do those things. But in parallel to that, there needs to be a crisis management work stream, something that can understand the impact of the incident on the business operation, something that can 
have uh, a prescribed approach when it comes to our communication requirements, working to protect our reputation, handling legal and privacy aspects, and ultimately getting to a point where we can make good decisions coming out of the incident. And so while the technology team is working, the crisis management team and the business continuity leaders need to be executing their plan as well to help keep that business operating. So uh, with crisis management teams or business continuity management teams, how do you get technology uh, on board with, with something like that, with cyber attacks? And the reason I ask that is I've worked in uh, security and business continuity teams. And a lot of times when there was an IT incident uh, using cyber attack or you know um, anything along those lines, it became a separate process and business continuity was either ignored or became an afterthought. So how do you bring them together to, uh, to want to work together? How do you get them to understand where they, that they do need to be together? I've been fortunate because the four different clients that I've put this type of a response plan together for, in three of them, well, actually in all of them, what we had was amazing leadership. In three of them, we had amazing executive sponsorship. So the executive sponsor was able to uh, look out over the areas that he or she were responsible for and say to technology, I need you in with this, and then also to the business continuity management program, I need you to run this. And so we were, we were able to generate that momentum because we got it right from the executive sponsorship. On the fourth uh, organization that I did this with, it was actually IT who said, look, we recognize this is beyond us, that there are mm-hmm. decisions that have to be made that are not technology-related. You know, are we going to pay the ransom? Are we going to engage our cyber insurance company? Are we going to negotiate with the threat actors? You know, are we going to engage law enforcement? What's our communication requirements? Things like that. And so, you know, it really comes down to, to good leadership. I guess using that approach, too, um, just hearing what you said, it allows um, the teams involved to actually focus on their expertise rather than trying to manage everything themselves. Yeah, I don't remember if I said this to you when we chatted last week or whether I actually said it in my session, but one of my favorite things to do during an exercise is to bring all of these experts to the table to run the, you know, to run an exercise and to present them with a plausible scenario and then watch the privacy people talk about, you know, all the different aspects of um, notification or reporting and things like that and watch legal have their view and, and inject themselves into different things while technology is, you know, adding their component to it. It's amazing to watch when you have people from all the different areas of the company that you need to draw on and, and bring together and they come and they're engaged and they can respond. It is, uh, it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, I, I think you did touch on that, but I, and I agree with you completely. Um, I, I think a problem with uh, some of the testing that happens today, especially with cyber stuff, you know, anything related to uh, cyber incidents, it tends to stay in an IT realm. But yet, as you describe, there are other ramifications, and they need to also discuss what they would do. The biggest challenge that I've run into, and I've I've run into it a number of times, 
is that the IT people, particularly the information security teams and so forth, you need to get them engaged early on and make sure they have bought in on whatever scenario you want to run. You want to run a ransomware attack, that's fine. Pick the system, work on it together. What you don't want to have happen is you don't want to have the InfoSec team or your IT team start pushing back on you in the middle of the exercise. Well, that's not plausible. Yeah. That would never happen. Or what what will tend to be happening, I had, I had a VP of information security tell me one day, this scenario you want to run is throwing rocks at my program. It's making me look like we're not prepared. And I said, well, you know, we're not actually going to take your network down here. We're just simulating what would happen. He said, I don't even want to admit to the executive team that it's a possibility. Pick another scenario. Wow. So it's important to get those people engaged and on board early on. Now, now you got me thinking of something else. So I, I, I know of organizations that have cyber teams and information security. Is there a difference uh, in, in your mind to those, or are they one and the same? I think every every organization puts their own spin on it. You know, it seems like um, the the one organization they had a very large IT department, uh, well over 150 people, and then they had a four or five person information security team. Uh, another client I'm working with right now, kind of the same thing, smaller scale, but the same type of thing. Um, and what has to happen is that the information security team and IT have to collaborate. They have to work together. Um, and the best way I can describe that is if you think about backups, right? And uh, there was a, a report I read recently that said of those surveyed who had experienced a ransomware attack, 61% said they restored their systems from backups. So they either restored or reinstalled the systems. They didn't even, you know, consider paying ransom, right? So mm -hmm. if you're going to do something like that, then your information security people, the people who know what they should, you know, should have the, the ins and outs of this to protect those clean copies of backups and things, they need to work with the IT teams who are implementing those strategies. And so there has to be that integration between those two teams. But to mm -hmm. answer your original question, um, yeah, I, I, I see it somewhat segregated uh, sort of as a rule. Sometimes you'll have, you know, kind of a lead person in IT have some information security um, uh, responsibility. That would be probably more true for smaller organizations. Uh, but uh, for the most part, there is a, a bit of a, a segregation of those duties. And I, and I think that's, uh, you know, I've got some questions to, to ask you as we move to the next section with uh, COVID. <laughs> And uh, so I, th I think I'm going to end our first segment uh, a little bit early, uh, just because I know once we start talking of uh, COVID and what's happening now, we'll probably just keep going. So <laughs> so um, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with crisis management expert Mark Hoffman, and we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone. 
and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with crisis management expert Mark Hoffman. Mark, in our first segment, um, you were we were talking about uh, you know the the testing and uh, during our little break here, um, you started to get quite passionate about uh, <laughs> the, the the example that uh, you started to give us. Um, so why don't you take that opportunity? And you don't have to name who it is, of course, but um, you know take that opportunity to uh, talk about that a little further. So yeah, you're right. I did get a little worked up, and it was interesting because <laughs> we were just talking about. You know, testing and working with the leadership and working with these information security teams and so forth. And so we had a client um, who was in, you know, just the, let's say the widget business. And I wanted to run a cyber exercise saying that their widget system got hacked. And I wanted to see how the executives would respond to it. And the sponsor, the executive sponsor of the program would not let me run that test. And I asked him why. And he said, because it's too sensitive. I don't want our board to know we're testing that. And I said, no, you've got to exactly 
flipped upside down. You mm-hmm. want your board to know we're testing it, but he was afraid to fail. And the problem is you cannot test just to pass. It's not a test. You have to run your exercise. Right. You have to be willing to accept the results of that exercise and then build off of that. You run an after-action report. You run a lessons learned meeting. You identify what worked and what didn't work, and you can't be afraid of that outcome because you would rather find that out. There I go getting passionate again. You would rather <laughs> find that out you know, in the controlled environment of an exercise Rather than finding out what, you know, in a real incident when there's really a gun pointed at your head and you have to make a decision. So, you know, that's, uh, that's something to be aware of. Uh, I, I've had some of those same experiences where we've had to change, uh, you know, the, the scope of the test or the, you know, the, the, the scenario, the focus, whatever you want to call it, simply because people were too afraid of what the outcome was going to be. And that told me they already knew what the outcome was going to be. Yeah. And that's right. And you know what? We were, this was not a technology test, right? This was a, that parallel line. This was the crisis management uh, response portion of, of, you know, what we were trying to test. So it didn't matter. It didn't, it didn't make the slightest difference what system we were simulating, right? We were still right. trying to test their readiness from a decision-making standpoint and from a communication standpoint and privacy and legal and so forth. And whatever system it was we happened to pick for our simulation was completely meaningless, but that was lost on that particular executive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've kind of uh, experienced that myself, like I said. Mm. Um, so let's move on to another part of your presentation, uh, cybercrime and COVID-19. Now, you suggest, or not suggest, but uh, you've stated that you know cybercrime is on the increase with COVID-19. Um, why is that? Well, we're, we're seeing a lot, and it's, you know, it's not just me saying it, right? So we're hearing from Interpol, and we're hearing from the U.S. Department of Treasury that basically what's happening is cyber criminals are upping their game. They're boosting their attacks throughout COVID, and they're doing it really at an alarming rate because well, first of all, they have so many more points of contact, so many more opportunities. With everyone working from home, there's that much more of a surface area for them to attack. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is things like Barracuda Networks is talking about the number of phishing scams going up you know, over 600% through the course of, uh, of the pandemic. Or... Uh, remote desktop protocols, the brute force attacks on them up, you know, 400%, particularly early on in the pandemic. Why? Well, because everybody was rushing to get their people up and running from home. And so in their haste, there were some vulnerabilities there, right? Um, But then, you know, even other groups like um, the Skybox Security had a vulnerability report, and they said they're seeing like a 75% increase uh, in ransomware uh, attacks just since the beginning of the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, we're seeing uh, a lot of activity right now. And so you think, well, okay, we got our hands full with COVID-19, but you can't turn your eye off the ball and ignore cyber because you'll get burned if you do. So, you know, let's say I'm working from home for a, uh, you know, whoever a client is, and I'm, I'm working here, and they've given me a, a desktop and everything. What kind of measures do I need to keep my eyes open for? You know, if the cybercrime, you know, is going up, 
you know, and we already get so many emails throughout a day anyway, either right. through work or personal. What kind of things do I need to keep my eyes open for the, to make sure that I'm clicking is, on the right stuff? Right. Well, that's right. And, and I, I did a program not too long ago where I said, don't be too quick to click. Um, and that's really the main area that we can focus on is to educate our users, the users who are working from home, uh, keep them up to date on to be alert for phishing attacks, and give them um, tangible, practical, and easy-to-follow instructions for what to do to make sure that a link is, is a valid link or to, to make sure they're not clicking on things that they shouldn't, because that's really where the vast majority of these attacks are starting is when people are clicking things that they shouldn't be clicking. Well, a, a quick story. You just reminded me something. Uh, the last client uh, I had, um, what we, what they did is they would tell us ahead of time that, you know, we are go- on an ongoing basis, at irregular intervals, we are going to send out fake emails and we're going to measure you know, the response, are people really paying attention to what they get? So they would send us emails, you know, hey, Alex, that report you wanted is, you know, now available, click on this link. And they would, you know, uh, monitor the statistics to find out how well the message is getting out. And, you know, if we're paying attention and, um, you know, I I could report something, you know, with a little button in my uh, email saying this is phishing, this is phishing, this is fake or whatever the case may be. And it really worked. You know, I thought that was a, a very interesting way of doing it. And you're right, and, and that's what a lot of companies are doing. In October is cybersecurity month, so a lot of companies are, are working on that right now. And uh, it's helpful, right, because the more you practice it, and I always, I always tell people, practice like you play, right? Do it like you're going to do it for real. And uh, the more you can uh, educate your user base, then the better off that'll be. The other thing, too, is to, you know, use some case studies or use some examples. Um, And so me being an independent consultant and going around and working with different clients, I get to tell this story without throwing anybody under the bus. Um, I'm throwing them under the bus, but nobody knows the person I'm throwing under the bus, so it's, it's okay. But I had a client who has only ever had one successfully executed cyber attack and that came through an email where someone was posing as this person's boss and asked them to click on a document and when this user clicked on the document it asked for her username and password and when she put it in the hacker got it and got access to their HR systems um, files showing Payroll information, uh, pension information, banking—all the you know everything that you would not mm-hmm. want to, to be, um, you know, <laughs> exposed. Yeah. And what ends up happening is, first of all, it causes the privacy breach, and then it costs the company a lot of money because they had to offer credit monitoring and, and do all of the remediation work. But the person who clicked on it felt like a complete heel, like they they actually you know, almost had to take time off because they felt so badly that they exposed the information of all of their colleagues. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be tough. That's, you know, I, I guess that's when uh, you know, HR and gets involved, but in a different way, you know, in yeah. an almost a supporting um, role, 
you know, to help that person so that they don't, you know. Yeah, the worst thing is this person worked in HR, so. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) based on that example that you just gave, what what options, you know, and and there is a uh, a ransomware attack, uh, you know, and or cyber breach, what options are open to organizations? Like, how do we respond? Do we just shut everything down, run away, you know, pay money? You know, what, what kind of things are open to us or, or well, to organizations, I should say? Yeah, it's a fair question. The, the first thing you do is when the cyber attack occurs, should not be the first time you're having these conversations. Mm. So I like to lead organizations through seven to ten questions that they're very likely going to have to answer uh, when they get into the middle of a, let's say it's a ransomware attack. And the first one is, and not emotionally, but just based on your company's core values and your principles and your risk appetite and what industry you're in and the reputational impact, I want them to answer to me, are you likely to pay a ransom or not? And most times, more and more now, people are much willing to say, no, I'm not going to pay the ransom. Now, the problem with that is, just to go off on a side tangent here for a second, mm-hmm. is that we're also starting to see cyber criminals are upping the game here by saying to people, okay, that's fine. If you don't pay the ransom, we're now going to release your data into the public. So now a ransomware attack, which locks a system and prevents use, is now turning into a data breach, which is a whole other kettle of fish. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that... that ups the game. But rather than thinking about it for the first time, when you first find out that you've been hacked, you need to pre-plan these things. So your options are to, again, go back with your uh, information security team and your IT team to build adequate backup strategies that isolate backups so that systems can be rebuilt or that you have uh, robust intrusion detection systems or that you have, you know, the proper forensic teams uh, on call that can come in and help you with these things. So, you know, the the options really are kind of, they, they, they kind of center around, are we going to pay the ransom or not? And then if we are, that's one sort of path that we take. But if we're not going to pay the ransom, then we need to be thinking about communications, particularly if there's going to be the potential for a data breach. We need to be thinking about internal restoration of the system, whether it's installing from scratch and rebuilding or restoring from backups. And, you know, so you have these different things. But then along with that, you have to understand what are our communication requirements, what are our privacy law requirements, um, how do we notify people, uh, what do we need to do to protect our our reputation and, and, and things along those lines. And the interesting thing about these decisions <clears throat> is that they can change over time. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The city of Baltimore <clears throat> in May of 2019 had a major ransomware attack. And the Ransom demand was like 13 bitcoins at the time. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 or maybe $80,000. And the city of Baltimore said, no, we're not paying this ransom. All right, that's fine. That's a good decision. There's nothing wrong with that decision. So then they turned IT loose and they said, go recover our systems. And after about six or seven weeks, IT said, well, we can't. Now think about that. 
Think about the business continuity implication and the impact on the organization, whether it's a city or, you know, a private company or whatever, of your major systems being down for six weeks. Like, that's crazy. So they brought in some consultants. They couldn't help. They brought in more consultants. They couldn't help. But they stood their ground. They said, we're not paying this ransom. And the latest I heard was that the tab for recovery was somewhere in the neighborhood of $18 million. Wow. Against a $76,000 ransom. Now, I'm not saying paying the ransom in that case was right, but at some point, you have to be able to reevaluate the situation and say, okay, maybe we need to rethink. And so you talk about, well, what are your different options? What you should be saying is, our default position on paying ransom is no, we are not going to pay ransom unless there is some kind of a compelling case that, that sways us off of that position. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, in this particular case, you know, six weeks down, you could have reevaluated that and said, well, that might be swaying us off that position. But that's the approach I take. Seven or eight kind of key questions, build a default position, but then anticipate what those considerations might be and be willing to revisit your position on those key decisions. Based on that, you know, if if I'm given you know, uh, I, I request for $100,000 or whatever. Are there ramifications if, you know, I do pay it right off the bat? You know, are there legal problems or branding, you know, anything like that reputation by paying it? You know, Again, it, it, it's going to depend on a couple of things. And just recently, in early October, as a matter of fact, the U.S. Department of Treasury Uh, put out a statement, their Office of Foreign Assets Control has suggested now that they might actually fine U.S. people or companies who facilitate ransomware payments to certain Mm -hmm. cyber actors. So they have put different cyber actors, the Lazarus Group, et cetera, and different things on um, a sanction list. And their view, and they're not wrong, is that Companies that facilitate ransomware payments are allowing them, enabling them to continue with their illicit, you know, activities. So mm-hmm. they're trying to prohibit people from engaging in those transactions. So that's something to be aware of. Um, now, we're in Canada, but you have listeners all over the world. I have mm-hmm. not yet looked into this to see if, um, you know, other countries are implementing, you know, similar uh, potential fines for violating these regulations. The other thing to be aware of is kind of depends on, on the company. Um, you know, if, if, if it's a company that uh, is protecting a portfolio, for example, or, you know, certain investments, and, mm-hmm. you know, you, but you could be called either way with this, right? So let's say, yeah. let's say the example I gave about the city of Baltimore was a company that was supposed to be protecting a series of investments. And they didn't pay, and it cost $18 million against that portfolio. The stakeholders of the portfolio could be significantly irritated with the fact that they could have gotten off for $70,000, but it cost $18 million. Now, the other side of that is they could have paid the the $70,000, and the stakeholders could have gone, what are you doing? That's our money. You can't give that away. So uh, that's why part of this also has to include Understanding your reputation management requirements and your communication requirements. Right. 
And I know there you've got um, uh, the next section that I want to talk to you about are, uh, uh, what, what do you call it? Four by four things to consider. So I'm going to leave that to our next uh, um, segment because I think that's a perfect lead into that section. All right, that sounds so great. Yeah, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking with crisis management expert Mark Hoffman, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with crisis management expert Mark Hoffman. Uh, Mark, great to first and second segment. 
this last segment, I want to talk uh, about something you uh, have in your presentation about four by four things to consider. Can you explain what those four things are and what you mean by four by four? Yeah, so basically I, I wanted to focus um, on some things that people can do to start to consider that parallel work stream, that crisis management work stream. And uh, what I did was I've uh, come up with uh, four specific areas. And then with each of those four specific areas, I have four kind of key points. So very quickly off the top, the four areas would be cyber insurance, um, communicating after a cyber attack, uh, ways, four ways to uh, integrate your business continuity program into your cyber response, and then four specific things that you can do now. And uh, there, are, there are some things that people might be looking at this and, and you know, listening to this and thinking, hmm, I haven't done anything in this whole parallel work stream thing. What, where do I start? And so that's why I wanted to try to uh, uh, you know, bring out these uh, four areas. Well, can you talk about the first one? It's cyber insurance. What is that, and what do we need to understand about it? The first thing that we need to understand, the first thing I would encourage people to go find out is, does your organization have cyber insurance, yes or no? Um, when I mentioned the city of Baltimore, they did not have cyber insurance. So that was part of, I think, their decision in, you know, as to whether they're going to pay that ransom or not, right? So, so the first thing that, I want people to understand is whether or not you have it. But then once you find out whether you have it or not, understand the scope of that coverage. Understand what it is that it's going to cover for you. Is it going to cover data that's in data centers all around the world, or is it just a specific uh, geographic area or a specific jurisdiction? Is it going to cover data that's on your laptops or data that's on your phone? Or is it non-electronic data? It will just cover data that's in documents and filing cabinets and so forth. So understand the scope of that coverage, including uh, policy um, uh, limits and, you know, and, and things like that, which leads me to the next thing, which is understanding policy exclusions. I was doing a review for a client one time of, of their cyber insurance policy, and uh, this particular policy said that any data breach that was caused by a laptop that got uh, exposed and that laptop was not encrypted, it made the policy null and void. It would not cover that particular claim. And when I went back and asked the, uh, the head of IT about that, I said, did you know about this uh, exclusion? And he said, no, he wasn't even aware of it. I said, are you encrypting your laptops? And he said, no. So they were in for a potential rude awakening right down, down the road. So it's really good to understand those uh, exclusions. The third thing in this segment is to understand what added value your insurer is going to bring to the table. A lot of times they'll bring in uh, a breach coach or they'll have relationships with world-class forensic teams or legal teams or privacy teams, public relations, things like that. So try to understand those things. And then the last one, and this is super important, make sure you understand the process for engaging the insurer at time of incident. You want to get them to the table as early as you can. You don't want to get offside or you don't want to get ahead of them where you start making decisions and taking actions that they haven't authorized. 
because mm-hmm. they're going to cover a lot of the costs that you're going to incur as you go through this. So um, it's really important to understand, uh, you know, how to engage the insurer at time of incident. So then the next one uh, I think you talked about was communicate well. That, <laughs> that kind of goes without saying, isn't it? Oh, it does, but do people? <laughs> um, wow, boy, there's just too much to talk about there. So I'm gonna, I'll try to keep this, you know, uh, down the middle of the road here and not, not get too far uh, out of bounds. But you know, we live in a world right now where uh, people don't communicate effectively, and a lot of times things get distorted or spun or whatever. And when we're talking about crisis communications, whether it's in cyber or any other type of crisis, there is a four-step process that I like to follow. And the first one is to just come out and own what happened. Start right there. Whether it's a notification letter to affected parties or whether it's a statement in a press release or in a press conference, it's important to own what happened. Hey, we're here to let you know that we're the victims of a cyber attack. That did blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's the very first thing. Own it. The second thing is now you can add some context, right? Don't start by adding context. Add context after you've owned it, right? So you can put some details to the incident. Um, And so a a good example would be uh, maybe we were the victim of a distributed denial of service attack that took our online servers offline. Right, So that's the opening statement. We're letting you know, or yes, our systems were down for 12 hours because we were the victims of this denial of service attack. The context is, and it's important context, no data was exposed or even threatened to be exposed as a result of this attack. That's excellent context. Add that in there. The third thing is to talk about your plans. What are you going to do about it? Have you learned something out of it? Have you uh, changed your process? Have you decided to add a forensic team? You can, you can talk about what you're going to do to either make sure it doesn't happen again or to resolve the situation as quickly as possible. And then once you've owned it and expressed context and then talked about your plans to remediate it, then you can you, you get permission to ask for your customers' continued confidence in what you're doing. And so those are the four steps in the communication piece. And your next one is, you know, ways business continuity can help. Now, this one should be interesting. How, how, how can the BCM or BCP, whatever their team name right. is, how do right. they get involved? You asked me early on about integrating different parts of the team, and, and I said it really needs to come from good leadership. And this is where you're going to build, think of it as sort of a people sitting around a table, and I know right now nobody's sitting around tables except for virtually, so maybe I should say think of it as a Zoom call with all these boxes, and you have on that call your cyber lead and your IT technology lead, legal, privacy, communications, uh, HR, and, uh, you know, all of the different people that you need to bring to, to the table as part of uh, your crisis response. Well, there are two other people I want you to bring to the table. The first one is the, the head of your business continuity management program, and the second one is the affected business owner 
for whatever systems have been impacted by this attack. So let's say it was a situation where um, the HRIS system was down. I want the head of HR, who's probably already at the table anyhow, but I want the head of HR to come to the table and be part of the discussion. So there are four things that having this integration will help with. The first one is it's going to help you understand much more efficiently which business functions are affected by whatever systems are down. We're building business continuity plans every day that address a system down event. And when a cyber attack happens and it takes systems down, we're executing that business continuity plan. And having that business owner at the table to tell us, yeah, look, without that system, we can't do this, 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 and that. That's going to be way more efficient if they're right there at the table. It also allows that business owner to talk to the technology team and say, listen, remember from our BIAs, our recovery time objectives here are, you know, four hours, 24 hours, 48 hours. So the second thing that can happen is that technology and business can have that conversation in a hopefully controlled setting that the crisis lead is facilitating. And then the technology person can come back to, to the business and say, listen, this isn't just your average little disaster here, not that they ever are, but we're not going to meet that 24-hour RTO. We're looking at four days here. And so then, understanding what business functions are affected, the business lead can uh, communicate the impact back. And so that's the third thing. It gives a clear understanding of the impact of that downtime. Listen, if that system's going to be down for four days, then I'm not going to make these three deadlines. What's the impact of that? Well, we're going to have a reputational impact here. We're probably going to face some fines here, whatever it turns out to be. But by having business continuity sort of at the table, they can understand all of this data that you've collected anyhow. That's one of my biggest pet peeves coming out of a BIA is we collect all this data, then nobody ever does anything with it. So this gives you an opportunity to use it. And then the last thing is understanding the prioritization of those critical business functions and those critical activities. Because that conversation around how long it's going to take to get systems back up allows the business owners to say, wow, man, we got to start working on a workaround for this so we can at least get something done. So just to kind of sum that up in 15 seconds, bring that business uh, owner to the table You'll have a better understanding of what functions are involved. You'll understand recovery time objectives versus capability. You'll understand impact, and you'll understand prioritization of the business uh, functions. And, and I just want to add, I guess, by adding that business owner, or if they're not already a part of it, getting them there so they can, you know, confirm that yes you know it's a tuesday of the third month you know which means you know we are going to get fined lets them know that but we may not get fined if i give a notification to that uh client who we deliver that file to or whatever right now and give them a heads up of what's happening yeah that's right no hey look we're not going to meet that sla so we better get on that right now and start to mitigate that think about all of the different moving pieces here right you have Let's say you have a ransom demand against a certain deadline for payment. You have, so that's one piece. 
you have technology working feverishly to try to recover. Hopefully, they're giving you some estimates of you know, recovery time. So you're measuring that against the deadline. But then over in this corner, you're measuring your recovery time objectives and the impact of downtime against the business. So these three pieces of information are swirling together to try to help you make better decisions. And the fourth thing, and we've only got two minutes for it, by the way, <laughs> four things you can do now. So the first thing you can do is identify your key, your uh, default positions to key decisions that you're going to have to make. Start thinking now about who do you need to communicate with? What are your reporting requirements from a data privacy uh, perspective? Are you likely to pay ransom? Are you likely to engage law enforcement? Those types of things. The next thing is, and we've talked about it, Evaluate your cyber insurance position. Do you have it? Do you need it? What are your needs? What are your limits? What are your exclusions? Those things. The third thing is get busy. This is a lot of work, but it's extremely valuable. Establish a cyber-focused communication strategy right now. Just like we anticipate key decisions, anticipate your communication requirements during a cyber attack. All the way down to, and this is a gold tip right here, all the way down to anticipate questions that your spokesperson is likely going to be asked and start to build effective responses for that. Do that now. Don't let it catch you off guard. And the last thing is document a cyber response plan where you put all of this together. And then when you get it documented, please exercise it. Yeah, exactly. That, especially that last one there. Now, right. Do you have any, let, let's give you a, a, an extra minute here, any closing thoughts, any final thoughts you'd like to uh, pass on to everybody? In the world of COVID, a lot of business continuity people are concerned about the perceived value that they have on their organization. So to those people, I would say this, go add value. I heard someone say one time they don't like to use the phrase new normal because we don't know yet what the new normal will be. So go inject yourself into the culture of your organization and define the new normal. Execute thought leadership, lead your company, do what you do, demonstrate value, and that will take care of that perception of the lack of value that you're bringing to the, to the organization. And I think that's a great place to uh, to end uh, today's show. Mark, I want to thank you very much for your sharing your time and your expertise with us. My pleasure. This has been fun. I can't believe that, uh, you know, it's it's over already. Let's go again. I know. Time, time goes by <laughs> much quicker than uh, people think when you're recording it. <laughs> no kidding. Um, but thank you. I really do appreciate uh, you sharing your time and expertise with us. And uh, I'm sure you know, everyone that uh, attended CRT and listened to you um, had a very, uh, hopefully, eye-opening experience as well. And uh, they take some of these, especially I like the 4 by 4 thing. It's so easy to remember. I hope yeah, they take that it, back with them. You know. Such an important topic. And I hope people are taking yeah. it seriously because you don't want to get caught off guard with this. Exactly. So thank you again. And everybody that's out there, if uh, you want to be on the show or advertise, please feel free to get in touch with me. In the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you.
you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.